cushioned individual chairs. You need to start praying hard. And you could also email me. <laughs> uh, just a quick announcement. We have a meeting for communications on uh, Sunday the 30th. Um, I'm just making it a general announcement in this context. I don't think we'll say it on Sunday, but we could. But if you're interested in helping with church communications, and I mean the mailers, podcasts, websites, helping me take what I'm, what I'm preparing and teaching and disseminating it and inviting the community and so forth. If you're interested in helping with this, we're building a committee. And um, uh, my plan on, on the 30th, Sunday after church, it's kind of det- detention, stay after church. My plan is to, um, to try to get myself out of the, the work of it as much as possible to where I'm now just saying yes or no to products, saying yes, that, that works or no, that doesn't work. Let me give you an example. So it, it occurs to me that the work that I'm doing isn't always clear or evident to what the church is, uh, what, what you know, because we don't necessarily communicate internally to what we're doing. So I said, you know what, we need to take the, the series that we do, and I do so much work, and it gets so detailed, sometimes you lose the, the big picture. So I wanted to have everyone to have a big picture. So Adam and Heather and I got together, and Adam came up with this for our Sunday morning uh, message. It's called The Christian Life of Paul. And I said, we need to get like a Roman road and then maybe some sort of sunset some, to get some color in it. And, um, and, and then the, the kind of the slogan, for me to live is Christ from Philippians. And so this is going in the basement downstairs. So when people come into our church and they look around and, oh, look at this on the wall over here. Oh, we got a calendar and, and uh, somebody scribbled some graffiti. Well, actually, we have, this is what we're doing. This is our Sunday series. And I, I'm going to be in uh, The Christian Life of Paul until the Lord comes back. So we won't have to redo that one. This is what's going on on Wednesdays. Most people on Sunday morning have no idea that we're studying the Christian mission. So I said, hey, we need to get one of those file photos from the, from the, from the government site that, that they have from the, from the landing at Normandy and use that as the background for the mission, for on mission, because we're advancing under fire. And I used that in the first or second lesson on, on mission. So that's tonight. That's Wednesday night. And so this will be up on the wall at the bottom in the basement of Fort Preston. And people will be like, what is, what is that about? Hey. This is what we do on Wednesday nights. We're on mission. And it, it gives our visually oriented culture some visuals. And then this is for everyone's consumption uh, coming up in October, October through probably through Thanksgiving. Starting October 7th, I'm going to teach a, a special series on the biblical doctrine of Christian spirituality or the walk by the Spirit. All of the Holy Spirit passages about how we advance and uh, what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit, a walk in dependence on the Spirit. And so picked, uh, John 15 is the core passage. We picked fruit, picked the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about grapes in that context. And so we, that's, and Adam Tebow is your graphic artist, and um, we're very thankful for his diligence and work and, and giftedness. And uh, I think those are fantastic. So thank you, Adam, for uh, all that effort. Actually, let's give Adam a round of applause. Those are fantastic. They could have been a little bigger. All right. If you'll turn your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter uh, 28. Surprise, we're in studying the Great Commission and the Christian uh, on on mission. What we're to be about. And um, last week we answered a lot of the objections people might have to adopting the Great Commission as our mission, as our watchword, as the, you know, when you start your morning prayers, start praying about that because that's what we're supposed to be doing. God opened doors for me to serve you. Um, tonight, we're going to answer another big objection and try to paint a picture of why we have a mission, why a command, why the Great Commission. And we need um, God the Holy Spirit to superintend this process. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God. Fellowship is broken through personal sin and regained by God's grace uh, in part when we confess when I say in part, I mean if you continue in personal sin and you confess that personal sin while you're doing that sin, um, that's, that's absurd. Stop it. Isolate that sin. Repent. That is a change of mind about it. That's a rejection of that. Okay? But you, the defilement of having conducted that sin, that thought, that, that gossip, that thing I shouldn't have said or done, that defilement is also in need of being washed. And so... Uh, as a believer priest, we go to the laver. We ask uh, our God um, to restore fellowship with him when we name our sins to him, when we confess them. And that's what John is telling us in 1 John chapter 1. 
So let's take a moment for silent prayer, and I'll open us in prayer. Father, we commit these uh, moments to you tonight for your glory, that you would um, not only give us something, we came that you would give us something tonight of yourself, and we crave the knowledge of you so that we can serve you. But Father, more than just that you would give us something, you would make us something. You would build in us the character of your son. You would continue to fulfill the promise you've made that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. So we crave that rapport, Father. We crave the fellowship, the enjoyment, the partaking in common of your things with you. And I pray that you would uh, show us where we have uh, fallen short, where we continue to fall short, where in our lifestyles we, have, uh, we falter. Perhaps it's, Father, that we don't want to talk about you in the presence of others. Perhaps we're, we're embarrassed. As Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes, Father, perhaps we are ashamed of the gospel because we think it's so irrelevant to our culture which is exactly backwards. Father, put us on mission. Help us enjoy the knowledge that we know exactly what you want from us and the specifics of how we carry it out are in your hands as well. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Put the mission patch from uh, Apollo 11 um, on the screen there for the talk tonight. We're talking about Christian uniformity and Christian diversity. Some people are really, really into uniformity. They want everybody to be the same. We call them pastors. No, I'm, I'm kidding. We, 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 call, we all feel this way at some point. That if everybody was just like me, can you hear me okay? Is this loud enough? Okay. If everyone was like me, they'd be better, obviously. We all think that about ourselves and others. And so we're looking for a certain uniformity. And I'm going to argue tonight that there is absolutely, dogmatically, Christian uniformity. But there's also, just as dogmatically, diversity, and they're on different issues. One of the big summaries is the way Christianity blasts the worldview of the prevailing secular culture today, the way it completely, you know, the, a, a person really embracing their popular world culture in, in, your, in your culture today will really not understand the Christian view and how the Christian worldview will tear it down and, and build it fresh and, and for God's sake. The difference is going to be that everybody wants diversity on the things that are supposed to be uniform. And they want uniformity on the insistence that we have that diversity, which ends up in perversity. The things that we're supposed to be unified on are the same on, like Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, well, that's a matter of diversity where that's your truth, not my truth. See, the world wants to have diversity on the things that are absolutely lockstep. We're all supposed to agree on the same. Only Christ, there's no other way. Oh, well, that's, that's intolerant. And then they'll say, I am being diverse from them. I, I'm saying that they're off of absolute truth into their relativism, you see. And so I'm not uniform with them on the insistence on relativism. See, what's upside down, the world is upside down and... That's not the best explanation I've ever heard of that, but um, my point is that we need to see what the Bible says about uniformity and diversity. I think you can find it in the Great Commission and its implications, in the, in the, the Jesus' mission for his church and in the implications of that for your life. So let's get to the Bible. In Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20, just by way of review, Jesus said in a cluster verb with a, uh, the participle plus the main verb of uh, Matthew he said, go and make disciples of all the nations talking to the uh, 11 remaining disciples right before his ascension. This is the way Matthew frames his presentation of the life of Christ and his last words in Matthew. These aren't the last words to the disciples. They're the last words in Matthew, reminding us Matthew is a literary work inspired by the Holy Spirit that is absolutely true in its historical details, but it's not a biography Okay, it's a gospel designed by the writer Matthew in the inspiration of the Spirit to say something to a community about Jesus, to help us understand who the King is and what our responsibility is as those who belong to him. 
So here's what the king says. All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. And then, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. How? By baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to keep all things whatsoever I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you all the days until the conclusion of the age. Amen. I'm with you all the way through. And uh, by the way, if you're not on mission, it's probably uncomfortable that he's with you because he's standing there saying, what are you doing? What are you doing with the Holy Spirit I gave you to put you on mission? What are you doing with your life where I've given you the word through the apostles and then through their tutelage, we see how to read the Old Testament, not to change its meaning, but to submit to it where we learn of righteousness, the character of God and his dealings with Israel. Why are you not so committed to the word that I've given you so that you can grow and be on mission? Jesus being with you um, while you're frittering away. You know, we don't want to think that way about Jesus when we're off mission. We want to, you know, you go hide in the back, in the back room when the boss is not looking and you just fritter away time instead of doing the work that you've been, you're being paid to do, right? I mean, nobody here is a shirker like that, but the world's full of them. See, that's, that's how we are if we're not on mission. And Jesus is with you to the end of the age. Why is he with me? Well, apparently he's interested in us accomplishing the mission and we need him with us apparently to do so. Behold, I'm with you all the days until the conclusion of the age. Amen. I will draw your attention to the word all the days. All the days. If I say always, that may be mo- more poetic in English, but it isn't what he said in, in uh, what Matthew wrote in Greek. He said all the days. You only get today. You, you can only get actually the present right now. You only get today because tomorrow you can't get hold of today. Tomorrow is the next day. And you can't get hold of tomorrow right now because it's in the future. So you only have the present. I mean, Jesus knows that. That's why he says in Matthew 6, let tomorrow take care of itself. You just handle today. It's your job. Do your job. Deal with today. You messed up yesterday. You did. You messed up today. Don't mess up right now. Stop it, right? Let's get hold of the future by dealing right now and setting the conditions. Let me give you an example of what you need to do today. You need to pay attention right now, and if you're having trouble concentrating, you need to go back to God and say, please help me concentrate so that I can get what you want me to get from what he's talking about. That's, that's how you deal with me and, and the word and, and concentration. But you concentrate, and then you set conditions, and you try to get that head on that pillow by 10, 1030. Why? I mean, at the latest. Why? Because tomorrow's coming, and you need the sleep and the rest that you need. Don't be like me and say, well, I probably can get by with five hours. I mean, four hours. I mean, three and a half hours. It's, it's no way to live. It's a good way to die young. And it's not a good way to set up for tomorrow. So, so set conditions because you got to prepare for tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes and you wake up refreshed because you got all eight hours. Thanks, Pastor. Good idea. I got all eight hours and you wake up refreshed and, you're, and you have that morning. Start your prayer time. Talk to him. Make today count. Open some doors for the gospel. Help me be on mission. Be a Christian right? That's how we walk as believers. So I want to illustrate something that occurs to me as we look at the mission statement in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. And I want to call it the unifying benefits of a shared mission. We're talking about Christian uniformity and Christian diversity. Let's talk about uniformity, the things that unify us. You people at Preston may be about God's mission, but we're going to be doing something else over here. Okay, but we're supposed to be all unified on Christ and his mission. See that everybody's got a different role. Everyone, you're diverse in your giftedness and how you do what you do. If everybody tried to do the same job, if everybody had to turn the wrench on the, on the job that we're doing, we're building a car. We're going to build Preston City Bible Church uh, handmade uh, Italian race car. If everybody had to hang the part and everybody had to be part of it, we would all be in a big gaggle behind the guy turning the wrench. And he would turn it, and then we'd say, okay, let me me get a turn. And then we'd turn the wrench a quarter turn, and the next guy would come. And then he'd be done, and then one of my kids would be like, I didn't get a chance to turn it. Okay, you get to go first next time. And we would never finish the car. 
right? Because we, you need to diversify. You need to, you need to everybody get a piece of this and we'll eat the elephant together in an hour instead of a hundred years because you have to divide the task. That's how uh, this works. That's diversity, but it's all unified. We've got one mission. That's kind of the view that I'm looking at tonight. So I want to give you a question. Imagine what would happen if you went on vacation as a family in separate vehicles. Doesn't that sound like fun? I mean, the whole point of vacation is that we're in the same vehicle and everybody suffers the same thing together. And then when we get done, we can say, oh, it's so good to be home. And now I am going to get eight hours sleep or 12 hours, whatever it takes in your PTSD recovery from your sleep, from your vacation. But what if you went on vacation in separate vehicles? Um, That would make it very complicated if you're going on a long vacation. I put, uh, I put a picture from um, Arizona in here because I have this great idea of, uh, of taking my whole family to see the Grand Canyon just as soon as we think we could survive it. We, we've got an almost two-year-old. We, we're almost where we think we could survive it. And, uh, of course, we could survive it now, but we just, I mean, do it with, without uh, PTSD again. So um, what if, you, okay, so if you've got multiple vehicles, that means you've got like a convoy of cars, so in my family, if we don't have seven seats, including the driver, then we are in a convoy of cars. We actually had a breakdown once where I had to have a family come get us and they had to bring two cars because I had both of my parents with me. And so nobody had a nine-seater. And so now back home where I'm from, somebody would show up with one pickup truck. And then anyway, but it was snowing out. And so we weren't going to put my mom through that. <laughs> so, um, so, so the Lees came out with two vehicles and uh, we had dinner at the Lees. It was, it was charming and delightful and a real blessing. But, um, but a convoy of cars on vacation, um, that would be challenging. What kind of challenges come to mind right? Everybody has to know where we're going. You got to have two drivers. They have to be good at driving in a convoy, which is a totally different skill than just surviving on the interstate, right? You have to, now we've got two mechanical problems. Pastor Dave, I'm getting a merit badge and, uh, and going to see the mechanics lately. Uh, old cars mean that uh, I find myself as kind of the chaplain of the local auto shop. I am. It's great. I love that role. And I'm going to get a shirt made up. So um, just chaplain. <laughs> But, um, but if you've got two cars, that means there's two maintenances. That means there's two fuels. So you're paying more to go. It's more expensive. There's all kinds of new considerations you have to think about if you're going on a long vacation, on a long road trip. Or if you're flying. Now this gets really tricky. Separate flights, that means you get to the airport probably at the same time, but then you get all through security probably at the same time, but then you have to go to different gates, hopefully same airline, different times of flight because they're on different flights. Remember, we said different vehicles. This is awful. I don't want to go on vacation anymore. I'll pay extra to get on the plane with you because now once we get to the other airport, you have to wait till I get, till my flight comes in. And if your baggage got lost, then we got to, that complexity comes in. And if my baggage got lost because we flew both on blank airlines, then, uh, now we've got, I mean, that is a mess. Now, why am I talking about all this complexity? Well, I'm just trying to show you that a shared goal, a shared thing that we would do together can get really complicated if we're not unified. Like, for example, on vacation, just in the same car. Now, let's make it even worse. Now, imagine that there was a disagreement on where a vacation was going to be had. Driver A says... Grand Canyon. Driver B says, I want to fish in the Gulf of Mexico, which is a fun thing to do if you like to fish in bathwater. That's the beach where I'm from, the the Gulf of Mexico, Galveston Island in in Texas, or Padre Island, or Grand Isle over in Louisiana. These are if you went there, you people of the northeast on the eastern seaboard here, you would go there and say, there is sand and there is ocean water, but I wouldn't call it the beach. Anyway, um, maybe there's a lot of tar with some sand. Anyway, it's, uh, but it's, 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 it's what we have down there. And um, so, so the other person wants to go to Gulf, and then somebody, of course, says, no, Cape Cod. I want to go to Cape Cod. And so if you have multiple vehicles now, you could have multiple destinations for your vacation. Right? And so um, we just introduced some diversity where, tragically, we're no longer on vacation together. You may all have gone on vacation, but you didn't go on the same vacation, right? 
Because at some point, with all the differences of all the people involved, and it's no fun if everybody's exactly the same, and the beauty and spice of life is variety, at some point we all need to get in the same vehicle and go together. Okay? And if you have two vehicles, it means you have a big, big group. So um, you can see why if Jesus puts us all in the same vehicle, if he puts us all in the same mission, this is, all the diversity can express itself, but we're all going to get to the same destination. We know what we're actually trying to do. So vacation is a fun example. I observe the following five things about the mission statement Jesus gave in Matthew 28. First, the Lord Jesus' mission was not the result of a committee meeting on the subject. He didn't say, all you guys have great ideas. What do you think we should do now that I'm resurrected and all authority has been given to me? He didn't call a George Washington, General Washington-style war council to say, what are our options? He didn't need to do that. You got to shift. Okay. Sometimes you want to wait till you can't hear them anymore, but that'll be a long time. So, Okay. For those of you at home, we just had somebody outside rev up something with high, 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 a lot of noise. Okay. Uh, the second, the disciples didn't get to say anything about the mission. Jesus said, here, here it is. Isn't that helpful? I have all kinds of ideas for the Lord. I, he made me uh, the kind of person who likes to make ideas. But apparently in determining what the mission is, he didn't need my help. He's, uh, he didn't ask me. He said it 2,000 years ago. This is the mission. Make disciples. Here's how you do it. Baptizing them. That's the conclusion of evangelism. You baptize a believer. And uh, by teaching them, that's an ongoing work in someone's life. Teaching them not all that I commanded you, but teaching them to do, to keep all that I commanded you. So it's, it's hand over hand in some cases, especially with young children. So they have no input on what the mission is. See, this is my kids on vacation. We're going there in a car that right now won't start, but it'll start tomorrow. We're going. And what, well, I don't, but I don't want to go. I didn't ask if you wanted to go. We're going. Now, at this point in my children's lives, they will actually have to go get in the vehicle against their wishes. And this will be the strangest thing. In most cases, I will not physically be forcing them to sit in the car seats. They will actually choose to finally obey me after we have a short conversation about it doesn't matter what you want what matters is what i said and you need to choose to serve the lord and obeying your parents we go through this a lot they they are definitely going to know the truth they may not always embrace it but they're going to know it so they don't get to they don't get any input input on the on the mission and this makes for unity this makes for a uniform mission they will all have input and creativity on other things, but right now, while we're determining what we're doing, it's settled. Isn't that helpful? We shouldn't be confused. Well, what's this church's mission statement? Great Commission in Preston. What's your mission statement? Great, great Commission where you are. There's no, there's no need for creativity here. Jesus has done a very good job of telling us what to do. Third, their ideas, perspectives, creativity, sensitivities, all these things were irrelevant to the identity or content of the mission. Irrelevant to this issue, and that's how you got your unity. Fourth, Jesus' directive is equally applicable to every hearer. All 11 disciples, Peter is really different from Nathaniel. They're different. P- Peter has a different skill set, different perspective. He's Peter, he's his individual. But every one of these different men has the same command. Isn't that a clear observation? equally applicable. And fifth and last, thus we find one key feature of Christian uniformity. One key feature of Christian uniformity, and it's the mission. We're all on the same mission. Don't ever divide yourself from the missionaries. Don't do it. We must never do that. We support foreign missions because what we're doing here has an expression outside the geographical bounds of our nation of our country. And so we are, we are supporting foreign missionaries, but they are an extension of our mission. And so you can't pull this apart from Christian spirituality, can't pull it apart from New Testament studies, from the life of Christ, from Pauline theology. This is the glue that puts it all together, is that we are an organization that Jesus has created with a stated purpose 
Can I define Christian uniformity? Here's six, seven things I want to say about defining. Defining Christian uniformity. First, let's define it. Christian uniformity describes the propositions, principles, attitudes, preferences, priorities, practices, means, and methods, at least those things, which are binding on all Christians equally. Now, Dave Roseland may not correctly assess what is part of that uniformity, but I, I think I've got some biblical notions from the Spirit of God through the apostles and prophets what these are. Again, the propositions, that'd be the Bible. Principles, this is the Bible in application. Attitudes, that's the Bible's application in my thinking. I'm not supposed to be ungrateful. I'm supposed to be grateful. Just for example, an attitude. See what I mean? There's a Christian attitude. Don't consider yourself more important than the other, Philippians chapter 2, but consider the other person more important than yourself. Philippians 2, that have this thinking that was in Christ. Have it in yourself. So my preferences. Um, sometimes we need our opinions to change to correspond to the opinions of Christ. Especially when it's a stated thing like what we're supposed to be about. Like what, what's our primary, primary directive and what are our objectives. The practices that we carry out, our priorities, the means that you there is a specific way. In fact, the same action can be conducted by two different people. Same action. If they don't have the right power, if they don't have the right relationship with Christ, then the actions are considered uh, of value or of no value. You can check it out in John chapter 15, verse 5. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Well, I can run a soup kitchen. I can feed the poor. I can, I can help. I can, I can support the troops. I can do whatever Christians should be doing. But if I'm not abiding in Christ, without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So what are the means? What are our methods? I think that these things are to be of a, of a uniform nature. And uh, we have to have a little bit of grace as we assess these things. There are churches down the street that they'll say the hem of your trousers or whether a woman is wearing trousers or not. These are matters of Christian uniformity. In our church, well, is that, I would say, a, a view of Christian modesty and a concern for others, ladies, for men and their eye gate. These are the things that would be of a uniformity. But you can't take a, how long your skirt is overseas and superimpose that on all cultures. You take the sense of the need to take care of gentlemen's eye gate because they struggle there. And your own modesty as someone that belongs to the Lord. These are the principles. See what I mean? That's your uniformity. And then you express it in your whatever diversity within whatever culture that, that you, you need to. See, this gets complicated. That's why I'm talking about it. I think these are binding on all Christians equally. Let me, let's do an easy one. Love one another as I've loved you. I don't care how you feel. I don't care whether you're sick or whether you're, whether you're well. I don't care what, you know, th- th- these are irrelevant, the, the diverse factors to the uniform fact that we're responsible to love one another. Sometimes that's telling me something I don't want to hear because I need to hear it. And for Christ's sake, I need to hear it. And for my ultimate good, it's to my benefit that I hear it, but it hurts. Admonish those that are out of line, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. So this is my definition of Christian uniformity. Second, Christians have a uniform mission and message. Can we agree with that? We have a Bible. We have a gospel. We, are, we don't need to be in, in difference. We do find ourselves at odds with one another on some of these things. Like what Bible translation you use, for example, I've talked about a lot lately. Or um, exactly how we should state the gospel. I knew a man once that if you couldn't use Mark 1.4 to say the gospel, you hadn't preached the gospel. 1.14. You hadn't preached the gospel. Unless you say it the way it says in Mark, then you can't. And I'm like, well, John never says what Mark says. He never uses the words Mark uses. So is John not preaching the gospel? Well, don't bother me with these biblical details. I want it my way. So, but we do. We have a uniform mission and message. The mission is stated in the Great Commission. And other passages we're studying, our message is the Word of God. Third, Christians have a uniform means, uniform power in which we conduct the Christian mission, the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit, one third person of the Trinity in every one of us to equip us for the ministry of service. 
right? The Holy Spirit lives in you if you have Christ. Did you know that? God lives in you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God has taken abode in you and made you the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you're not always filled by the Holy Spirit, but you are always indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? And the power in which we accomplish what pleases God is the power of God, the Spirit himself. That's what we're going to be studying in the the discussion on Christian spirituality. This is what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, without me, you can do nothing. Well, I can feed the poor, but it's nothing if it's not his power. So the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Fourth, Christians have a uniform body of truth, which defines our distinctively Christian worldview. What is that uniform body of truth? What's the uniform body of truth that is our source material? That we say this is where the authority lies. It's the Bible, isn't it? It's the Word of God inspired in the apostles of the Old Testament, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, and the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. That's the Bible. It's not the theology that we might have agreed to that came from the Bible. It's not. It's not the theology. I, I know people get hung up on that. No, no, it's got to be the theology because the, I've heard it said the Bible is just words on a page. Well, those words in their original statement in Greek and Hebrew are inspired by the Spirit through the writing of these apostles. Every word, every jot and tittle, Jesus says. And so this is a uniform body of truth that we may or may not grasp what it's saying we may differ on its implications, but it's our source work, our source material, and we do have that uniformly. Now, I'm saying what should be, by the way, right? I'm saying what ought to be from the scriptures. I'm trying to give a biblical worldview on uniformity. I'm not saying we have uniformity. I'm saying there is, there is a Christian view. By the way, it's pre-trib rapture. Rapture is before the tribulation. That's the Christian view. I, that's a controversial statement if any of you know anything about broader Christianity. It, it didn't used to be real controversial in America for a while there, but, um, but it is controversial. I think it's, it's accurate. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's in our doctrinal statement. We actually think this is important enough to say to, to you know, be a voting member here, governing member, you would subscribe to that doctrine. We actually still have that in our doctrinal statement. I think that's a good thing. Um, But not everybody holds to it. Anyway, it is the Bible, though, that makes me conclude pre-trib rapture. Not, I believe in the pre-trib rapture because I read Tim LaHaye or somebody, and now uh, i got to go find it in the Bible, right? That's not, that's, that's backwards. Fifth, these factors of Christian uniformity have been decreed from God to us. I got that out of Matthew 28. He says, this is the authority, and here's what you do. Here's what I want you to do based on my authority. You go make disciples. So it's top down. I hope you are in a place in your life where that is, that is a, a balm to your soul. You who want to be in control, I pray for you that you will let go of that enough to say, God, you take control. You get to decide what I need to be about. He has plenty of freedom for you to make your choices, but you can't choose what the mission is. Top down. Now, I know people that'll say, since Jesus does things top down like this, the pastor needs to be top down on the details that the Bible doesn't address. I can't. I'm not that guy. I'm, I read the Bible too closely. You have a spiritual life between you and God, and you need to walk before Him, depending upon Him, with a real spiritual life. And um, otherwise, we're going to be a cult. We really will be a cult, and uh, you'll be trying to replace Jesus with me or anyone else that'll be in uh, between you and him. Sixth, we are sinful. We sinful humans tend to chafe at this exertion of divine authority. Somebody says, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to do it when I say. If you're at all like me, without a, without a governor on your sin nature, and when someone says, this is how it is, and you need to get to it, you, you'll have a little bit of a, <clears throat> well, uh, really? I don't know that I'm going to do that. I'll have to check my schedule because we're arrogant, because we forget that we're not God and that God is God, because we don't want someone else calling the shots for us. And if you don't see this in yourself, if you haven't like, been able to identify this, ask the people around you that love you and know you well, see if they've ever seen it. And maybe those they know, I really don't see you have that spirit in you that, that you revolt against authority. 
And then you really need to be frightened because they don't even see it. <laughs> but it's a problem in the sinful fallen nature that we don't want God to be God. We want to have our way. And I believe this is the root of every personal sin I or you, anyone you know, commit. We want it our way. And even the desire at some level that God not have his way, that we have our way. And I think that is the very root of our problems. And seventh, I think it's so important, I put it in big, big letters, big, big font. This is one of my little summaries of the Bible. An arrogant person will perceive any exercise of authority as an abuse of authority. Have you ever known someone like that? Whenever they see authority exercised, right there, abuse. They shouldn't say that. Who are they to say that? Well, maybe they're the person who's supposed to say it. Paul asked the Galatians a very interesting question. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's football season. Think about that. There's a line. It's called the line of scrimmage. Two teams line up on either side. Paul is on the side with the truth. And the Galatians are lined up opposite him across the line. So um, we know who to root for on that one, right? Have I become your enemy? Are we opposed now because I have the truth? Where does that put you? You never want to be that person. You never want to be that kind of fool who in the face of the truth says, nah. And that's what the mission will help us do. It says, wait a second, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about God, by the way. Whatever you could ever want for yourself, believe me, whatever I could want for myself doesn't compare to what God wants for me, but he's going to get it and I'm going to get there through the mission and no other way because God is a God of getting it his way. If he didn't get his way, then we would be in despair because he's righteous and perfect and loving and infinitely holy. And so him getting his way is the only good way. And when we find ourselves at odds with him, we should really be uh, fearful because we are in great folly. So what is the good of a mission statement? What good is it? Well, another file photo from the United States government. NASA.gov provided this photograph. You all know this picture very well. If you, if, you, if you don't know who that is, I bet you've seen it before. And if you don't think you've seen it before, um, I will challenge you that pop culture has used this photo all over the place. MTV used this years ago in little cartoons. I mean, this thing has been all over the world a gazillion times. It's one of the most famous pictures from the 20th century, and it is of Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz, I believe, Elwood Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin, one of the three to first land on the moon. And uh, these guys had a mission. My question, using this illustration of mission, is what if NASA had not all agreed that the mission was to go to the moon? The famous New Englander president said, going to the moon by the end of this decade, you know, and, and, and they all said, yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, the Russians aren't on the moon yet, but they're going to get there. So let's go take over the moon first. Then they can't nuke us from the moon or something. I think that was probably pretty, pretty solid. What if NASA had said, that's not the mission? What is NASA? National Aeronautics and Space Administration. When I was a kid, the NASA guy told us in class, one penny of every dollar goes to NASA. NASA's billions of dollars of tax money, I mean, one penny of every dollar of tax money goes to the NASA. But it's billions of dollars of expense to have this space program. And we could get into that. I, I got to a three-week tour of the uh, Mission Control Space in, in Houston uh, when I was in college. And um, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for NASA, even though it's a government bureaucracy. Um, does, uh, if we all get on the mission to go to the moon, does that make everyone in NASA an astronaut? Do we, are we all astronauts if we get on the mission and say we're all going to the, we're going to the moon? Now, almost nobody in NASA are astronauts. Let me, let me give you, uh, this is from a very authoritative source. I got it from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> Landing men on the moon by the end of 1969 required the most sudden bursts of technological creativity and the largest commitment of resources ever made by any nation in peacetime. And the numbers are this, $25 billion to get Apollo 11 on the moon, starting from we're going to do this until we did it. 
$25 billion of American dollars, and adjusted for inflation by 2016, that's $107 billion, or a tenth of our annual budget almost. Anyway, I mean, a little more than a tenth of our budget, so that's a bad story, another story. But anyway, $107 billion to do this. Now, now about everybody being an astronaut, check this out. This is the, the stat I was looking for. I was actually looking for a number in this. At its peak, they say, the Apollo program employed 400,000 people and required the support of over 20,000 industrial firms and universities. 400,000 employees paid by NASA. This was a big work. They say the Saturn V rocket that pushed this thing up out of, the, out of our orbit is the largest machine, the largest physical thing ever made by man, the most powerful thing we've ever made, and that's still true, was the rocket that, that, that was used to, to deploy this thing. Um, the mission is the point of unity, and there's a patch, Apollo 11, and 400,000 people are Apollo 11 people, but almost nobody gets to step on the moon. Not, only Neil. Neil's the first. Neil Armstrong is the, is the one who gets the privilege of being the first. And then in that mission, only three. And actually two, um, Collins didn't get, to get, didn't get to get out of the lander. So the mission statement, go and make disciples by baptizing them, by teaching them. This mission statement of Jesus Christ is our point of unity that should characterize our lives. Every one of us, not just the pastor, not just the Sunday school teachers because they're teaching and it says teaching, but every one of us needs to be part of this mission. This is, this is how we join in the effort and put someone on the moon by way of illustration. There's the shot of the three astronauts. They were in the, in the capsule. On the left, that guy with the big smile, the big happy grin, that's Neil Armstrong. He's the first man to ever set foot on the moon on, uh, on the left. Uh, it was a thing. It was a big deal about who got to be the first. Aldrin, the guy on the right, he wanted to be the first. And he tried. He actually made a thing where he tried to get on. And they said the hatch, where you have to sit in the lander, the hatch opens this way, and it'll be awkward for you to get off. So Neil has to get off first. And so there's this big controversy about this. Did, did Neil Armstrong just get to because of where the door in, in the capsule was? Or did they just say that because they wanted him to get off first because they knew he could take it? being the first man in human history to step on the moon, he could handle that in his ego. And so that's, it's an interesting drama. There's soap operas everywhere you look, okay? But um, anyway, if you don't know what a soap opera is, that's actually good. So um, some were apostles, okay? Some people got, a few, got to go write the Bible, got to go actually start this mission off, got to plant where the gospel had never been preached before, it's a very small portion of the whole mission that got to be apostles or even pastors. The list in Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, these communicators, they're part of this, but they're a very small part of this. And if that's all there is to the mission, there's no mission. What are, the, what are those three astronauts going to do? Well, we're going to go and step on the moon. Right? We missed. We didn't get there. I guess we didn't get we, mission fail. But we were powerful, we were, we were smart, we were good at, we would have been good, we would have been great astronauts. Here's a picture of the Apollo 11 mission control. This is a very small piece of NASA. We said 400,000 people, 20,000 different institutions, firms and universities. Uh, this is the mission control guys. Um, notice the, while we're talking about uniformity, apparently a short sleeve dress shirt with a skinny black tie was the way to show up to mission control in 1969. <laughs> Isn't that great? I was taught never to wear a short sleeve dress shirt with a tie when I was going through uh, etiquette. But anyway, not all were apostles, but all were mission critical. See, that's the way you have to understand what God is doing. He didn't say the mission is for some. He said, this is the mission for the body of Christ. But everybody uh, has their cut. Everybody has their piece of it. So if you look at the Apollo crew, who has the right to wear that mission patch? Well, actually, kind of in America, we think we all do. Everybody wants to buy that and put, on that, put that on there. All the space, you know, enthusiasts will say, I'm going to put that on my jean jacket or whatever. But, but really, the people that earned the right to say, I was part of Apollo 11, that's 400,000 people that worked on it. Three of them are the figureheads because they actually went in the rocket, but you got the whole mission. 
so I think Christian diversity is pretty well known. I think the idea of the diversity is well known. I don't think we tend to understand we have one mission. Now, I use the moonshot as, a, as an illustration, a pretty extended illustration tonight. Think about this. How important is it that we went to the moon? In terms of technology in the Cold War, I think it was very important. In terms of like actually colonizing space or you know, eternal consequence, I don't think it's that big a deal. That we went to the moon or that we go past the solar system. I, I, I look to the scriptures. I've got a biblical worldview. I think that when Jesus and his resurrection body can appear and disappear in different places, the spatial problem of where you are on, in the universe is no longer a challenge. And so we don't, we don't have to make ships to do the kinds of things we want to do with space. It's not a problem. I mean, eternally speaking. So I, I love that, again, I've got a soft spot for NASA, but this is compared to making disciples who come to know Christ, who live forever to serve and glorify him. This, is, this moon business is very insignificant. I mean, in comparison. Every one of us is a unique work of God. Everyone knows this about our diversity. Every one of you is unique. And your uniqueness is so unique that the fact that you rub someone else the wrong way in just your personality is not shocking. The fact that we can, with all our rough spots, get, get together under one mission is a miracle of the Spirit of God because of our diversity. We all know we have differences. Each of us has at least one spiritual gift for the edification of the church. That's not a sinful diversity issue. That's a common ground. You have a spiritual gift. I don't know what it is. Some of them are listed. I don't think all of them are listed. You can look up the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 at least those two places where gifts are actually specified. Ephesians 4 has some gifts listed. Ephesians 4 is the one that tells you everyone gets one. Everybody has a measure of the grace of God, a gift, a spiritual gift. So we do have this diversity, and I hope you embrace that diversity. But before we go too far in that, remember 1 Corinthians 13, love is bigger than your expression of your gift. Love is bigger than any spiritual gift. It's the common unifying responsibility we share one mission. One mission. Our problems come up when we don't agree on things that are to be uniform. We had people leave our church once. It was a sad thing for the folks involved. It was sad for our church, but it was really sad for the people that left because we conducted church discipline according to the scriptures. And it was kind of an obvious, over-the-top, no-brainer church discipline. It wasn't like a controversial thing unless you're just absolutely committed to the world's ethics on marriage. It was, like, it was very clear. But we had, we had several families leave because we had conducted a church discipline. We had another family visit that stayed because we did a church discipline. But these, this is not a question for us. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, if you don't do this, you're arrogant. How are you not arrogant if you don't separate from this leaven? I, I take that as something very serious. So my contention is our problems arise when we don't agree on the things that are uniform. If we don't say we're all part of this mission, then you're going to have people that are flaky that are not on mission. It's a big problem. It's a wasted life. It's a wasted opportunity. In the army, we call it absent without leave, AWOL, somebody that is not permitted to be off mission, but they are. Ugh. So one of the things that's uniform is the mission. Another thing, the nature of truth. If, for example, if, if you're a believer in Christ, but you think his tr- truth is relative to the individual, then Christ is relative, the need for Christ relative to the individual instead of universally needful for all sinners. See, Christian worldview doesn't allow for personal truth. It's God's truth. It's his personal truth. And we either accept it or we don't. Ultimate reality, the nature that God is there and he's real. How knowledge works, what it is. The idea of what's right and wrong, morality or ethics. God says what's right and wrong. And either I believe him or I don't. See, these things are to be unified. Now, we are in different places in our understanding of these things, but we need to agree that there's a righteousness of God and the contradiction of that for us is sin. 
So here's the great fear people have of being on mission, I think, based on Matthew 26. They think, well, all you are just a bunch of little disciple makers. You're just a bunch of little preachers. Careful. It doesn't say preach. By the way, that word has an interesting range of meanings for different people. I've had more than one person tell me that they preach the gospel to their friend across the table at the fast food place. What they meant was not that they crafted a sermon <laughs> from, from PM 101 or 102 and they, and they, they had three points and two, three illustrations. and They didn't mean that by preaching. They meant they, they shared the gospel with the person. It's not a sermon, okay? But we have this fear of being the same. By the way, are my gingerbread men uniform or not? I hope you're like, well, yes and no. Depends. Do you mean they're all made from the same material? Yes. Are they all cut from the same cookie cutter? Yes. Are all the dots in the same place? No. Are they all smiling? Yes. Is it the same smile? Exactly. No. See, there's differences, but there's uniformity. That, that's something you have. That's the complexity of being a Christian. We're, what we do in our knuckle-dragging laziness, we don't want to think, and so we want everything to be either completely diverse are completely uniform. But we're just being lazy. We need to say, well, some things have to be the same and some things are going to be different no matter what. And the wisdom is to say, uh, let's stick close to the word and to the Lord Jesus and really focus on where he unifies us, like with the mission. Being the same about the right things doesn't mean being the same about everything. Right? Why are you saying this if you're saying your pastor is Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Because he said this one mission for all those different guys, and they all have a different piece of this mission. Thomas, historically, we know he went to India. Peter didn't go to India. We don't know if Peter going to India. Thomas went to India. See, that's his cut. So they have one mission, but different expressions, just for geographically, for example. In fact, we cannot be the same about everything if we want to accomplish the mission. Remember, if you, everybody has to turn the wrench, then the car never gets built because somebody has to work payroll. And if payroll doesn't happen, then everyone quits. So you can say you were part of the car building project when you worked payroll. Well, that wasn't building the car. Yes, it was. Because if I didn't work 10 hours a day to manage this, the paperwork side, which is so loathsome to us, then we wouldn't actually have the thing work out. Okay, so you can't be the same about everything if you want to get anything done. I cannot graphically design. I can say, I kind of think this would be neat, and then we work together on a process. It's very wonderful. Anytime I get to work with any of you, when I work with you, when I work with you, anytime there's a creative process where we can work together with Mike, any of you, Barbara, we've worked together. Anytime there's an opportunity to do something creative together, we can't just instantly say everybody's the same you have to have freedom to to be creative but we are unified on one mission one savior one scriptures and so every one of us must choose i use my words carefully every one of us must choose to be a disciple maker if the scriptures are binding on you in any way if you're a believer in jesus christ then you have to see this as your identity. You may say, I, I'm not good at that. I'm not good enough. Well, well stated. Well stated. Me neither. You may say, I don't know how to do that. Fine. You can say a lot of things, but one thing you can't say and be a Christian committed to the word and consistent with it is, um, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. You have to say, I'm going to be a disciple maker. You might be part of the payroll. We might be part of the box stuffing committee when we're sending care packages. You might be part of the music that, that God has, has equipped you. Apparently, we find at an early age, musical intelligence, the, 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 stu- the, the students of this, the researchers say musical intelligence is identifiable early in life. So maybe God gave you that. He gave you everything, so he gave you that. So maybe that's part of your piece of this musicians but not just music how how are you going to see what you're doing as making disciples that's the question 
And if you're like, I'm doing a lot of things that are making disciples, but I'm doing a lot of things that aren't, you know what? I bet you can push those things into disciple making. I bet you can find a way to rearrange your thinking to where, no, this is all part of that thing. That's the challenge. What do you have going on that's not part of the mission? Think about it. You don't have to get back to me, but I'm, I love to kick it around with you because I like to talk about the word and the Lord. What do we have that's not part of the mission? Well, but I'm raising kids. That's the mission. Make disciples of your kids. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, well, of course. That's what we're talking about. What do you have this? Well, I'm just a lowly employee. I'm the lowest employee at work. I'm not over anybody. I have no authority influence on anyone at work. How can I make disciples? You better be in prayer. Pray for doors to be open so that you can minister the gospel. And it may be that it's your supervisor. It may be that you find yourself in a supervisory role or someone gets hired that's lateral to you and then it's not weird. You could just talk to the person sweeping the floor next to you about Christ. Who kn- I don't know how the doors will be opened. I just know that that's our mission and we need to be on mission. Maybe it is that you do your work and God never opens a door at work. Maybe it is that you do your work and you work hard and you're good at it so that you have something to share with others because of how God has blessed your production. Maybe it's financial. And so you didn't get to make disciples at work, but you're in earnest prayer for God to open doors and he didn't. But, but, but But he did bless you with resources, so now you turn them toward the gospel. I mean, the mission is very broad in terms of your piece of it, the question is, are you going to take it on? Are you going to say, this is what life is about? I'm, I'm contending that um, we're under fire in this. Primarily in our world today, we, I, I chose this image of Normandy, of the beaches in Normandy and the guys advancing under fire because there are lots of ways we get taken out of the mission. I think the number one attack, the number one machine gun nest bearing down on us is the civilization we live in that says that the gospel is basically optional and or irrelevant. And, an, and it's, just, it's just an interesting thing to be part of. I think that's the nature of the war you wage. It's not direct. You're, most of us are not under some sort of direct attack. It's a ethereal kind of a background radiation sort of, well, this is just how it is. And we learn to be fluent in the world and never look for the door for ministry of the gospel. And we get stuck. And it's, that, that goes on at Preston City Bible Church. It's probably going on in your life. It's not, if it's not a challenge for you, I promise you, you know somebody that is stymied and they're not advancing. They're not on mission and they don't even, they don't even have a conscience about it. One of my goals in this is for us to study the scriptures closely enough in Matthew 28 and the other Great Commission passages where we can come away and say, well, at least I know I should be on mission. At least my conscience has been calibrated. That's my prayer. Let's take it to the Lord. Father, we praise you for fellowship in your word, for the clarity you've given us about your expectations, and for the way to think about things like university or uh, uniformity. We should be on one mission. Uh, and yet diversity. We all have different gifts, different ways we uh, can participate in your great commission. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us. And one way I pray for strengthening is for you to open doors for ministry so that we can see results. God, you've opened many doors in this church in recent years where we were challenged, where we were present and uh, on mission, on duty. And we did not see uh, the desired outcome that you've stated. We did not see the person. We, we bore witness, and now we continue with a consistent witness to a world in rejection. But, Father, we need the glory. We need the joy of seeing people come to know you as their heavenly Father through your Son. We need to see people come to Jesus the only way. Father, it's such an encouragement and we do praise you so much for those times we've seen that and we have, every one of us have people on our list that have heard the gospel and rejected Christ or we haven't been able to get the conversation to that point. Open the doors, Father. We beseech you to send workers out into the harvest. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.